0: Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro. I'm substituting for the absent Mark Leonard, who has complacently left me in control, and so we'll see who does better. I'm the research director at ECFR, and this week we're talking about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, which is currently taking place or took place yesterday in Samarkand a gathering which provides an opportunity for the leaders of China, Russia, India, Turkey, and Central Asian states to meet for the first time face-to-face after the Russian invasion, and which will likely result in Iran becoming an additional member of the organization. To talk about this meeting and to see whether it has any meaning whatsoever, we have an all-star ECFR cast, Asla Aydintashbash, Associate Senior Policy Fellow and in-house expert on Turkey, Elie Garanmaya, Senior Policy Fellow and Deputy Director of ECFR's Middle East Program, Marie Dumoulin, Director of ECFR's Wider Europe Program, and Yanka Ortel, Senior Policy Fellow and Head of ECFR's Asia Program. Wow, that's a lot of uh, directors and heads. Uh, I wonder if anybody's minding this store. Thank you all very much for joining. Um, and let's get right into it, because we got to have to do the whole world in 30 minutes. Janka, what, what was going on at this SCO meeting and what, what, should, what, should, what does it mean? Is it, uh, it's been billed as a sort of anti-NATO organization. Is that what it is?
1: It is kind of funny because there was a NATO member present. So that is a kind of uh, slightly schizophrenic interpretation of the meeting that way. But I think the big line item or the big picture question is that, uh, I mean Turkey, yes, indeed. Um, the, um, I think the big item on the agenda is the fact that this meeting took place at this time with this particular setup. We have Xi Jinping, we have Putin, we have Raja Modi there, we have Iran, we have Turkey joining. This is quite a gathering and it is also a signal that this whole idea that the international community stands against Russia with regard to the invasion in Ukraine There is an alternative reality to that as well, where there is an alternative international community that comprises a good 40 percent of the world um, that uh, is meeting um, and is having conversations where Russia is a regular member at the table and is not the rogue one out, um, the the state that is not at the table. So the fact that Xi Jinping um, personally showed up after almost a thousand days of diplomatic self-isolation in China of only taking virtual gatherings was in and of itself probably the biggest news. The fact that Narendra Modi also showed up, and that just ahead of the meeting, um, China and India were able to kind of disengage, just solve the disengagement in their border dispute, which was one of the reasons why this meeting could happen in that fashion, was the other big item. So, for me, the meta narratives are actually more important um, than the things that have been discussed in detail at the SEO meeting itself.
0: So, Asla, as Janka mentioned, the sort of odd Person at this meeting is is, uh, President Erdogan because he's the head of a NATO country. What is he doing there and what is he trying to get out of it? And and did he?
2: Well, yes, he is the odd one out. Uh, If you've been following his political trajectory, it's not so surprising because Turkey has been getting rather close to Russia, particularly economically, and the Erdogan-Putin relationship is the core element of that. But um, he is trying to use the war in Ukraine as a way to sort of uh, as, what, as a way to do what he knows quite well, hedging. Uh, he calls this balance policy. Uh, he's not a committed member of the Transatlantic Alliance anymore, nor is he a committed member of the Eurasianist League. What he wants to do is to play off the West against, I think the Russia uh, or China and try to maximize particularly his gains, particularly materially. So Turkey has been getting some money from Russia. It has not joined the Western sanctions. Erdogan is very proud of what he calls his balance policy. And I think this meeting this photo op last night with Erdogan sitting with Lukashenko, putting Raisi all having a good time. Uh, I think it's intended to do two things. One is to please Putin because he's become rather dependent on cash injections or continued trade from Russia and is hoping to get discounted natural gas but secondly he wants to signal to the West that he has other options. It's very important in the core element of his foreign policy this sort of back and forth and and I think right before uh, heading to New York where he once again wants to meet with Biden and has been having a hard time getting that meeting, he will use this photo op to say uh, you know give me this meeting because I've got other friends and other options.
0: It's great to have other friends and other options, but it seems at the moment that they're not the greatest friends and greatest options, particularly because uh, the Ukraine war is going quite badly from the Russian perspective. How is that interacting with uh, Erdogan's calculations?
2: Well, Jeremy, that the premise of that question is that if you were running Turkey, that would make sense. But if Erdogan is running Turkey, heading into an elections with state coffers empty, dependent on... Uh, you know, trade and, and and even funds that are coming from Russia to prevent a, a, another currency collapse, to prevent a balance of payments crisis. I think uh, those friends look far more interesting. And I think on top, let's not also forget Turkey is no longer a country at the leadership level, at least, that is attached to liberal values and the liberal order. Uh, every single day, the discourse here the political narrative here is that there's a new world it's multipolar we're going to play all cards have a foot in each camp and will be will emerge as a strong power it's no longer about democracy get us into the european union we've advanced so much we're getting better etc those things don't even exist anymore uh, it's about, it's about power and great power politics and as such and Erdogan has conveyed this to his base as the best thing to do for Turkey. As such, I think he's not going to really uh, think that it's the worst company to be in. Quite the opposite. Since last night, since, that photo, since the photos that have come from uh, the meeting in Samarkand, you know, Erdogan's supporters have been saying, you see, this is a great photograph, just so shows his strength. So he's going to use this for domestic purposes.
0: Okay. What I take from that is that it's probably too bad that I'm not running Turkey, but I take your point. You know, uh, Ellie, from a from an American perspective, at least, probably the most frightening thing about this meeting was uh, the Iranians being there. Because if this meeting is, is useful for um, uh, avoiding the isolation of Russia, it's probably even more useful for avoiding the isolation of Iran. Is this, does this Uh, Does Iran's joining this group indicate that the isolation of Iran by the West has failed?
3: Well, probably yes, in in short. But, I mean, it's interesting. What I'm hearing from everyone is that a lot of these actors, including, I would say, Iran, are looking at this organization as a sort of insurance policy vis-a-vis their relationships, especially with the United States, in part with Europe. And it's, um, I think it's, it's not by accident that this meeting is happening just a week before, days before, the UN General Assembly is, is to take place when they are all trying to play their cards with um, their Western counterparts. Now, for Iran, I think they've been desperately trying to become part of this club, you know, for over a decade. And interestingly, it's been Russia at times, China at times that have been blocking Iran. But now they are in a place uh, where... I would say Moscow and Beijing are more in alignment uh, with Iran's view of this multipolar world um, where because of their relationships being soured with the United States, they are more open to having Iran, which let's not forget is is still designated as a state sponsor of terrorism by the United States to join this club uh, in, in previous time. Beijing had uh, used really technical rules like the fact that Iran was uh, sanctioned under Security Council designations of sanctions uh, to push back against Iran becoming full member. So the optics now for the new Raisi government to join this international organization, which will really be the first major international organization Iran has joined since becoming the Islamic Republic of Iran after the revolution, uh, is a real victory. But it really falls short um, in terms of being able to fulfil Iran's biggest needs going forward. Firstly, on the on the economy, none of these countries uh, in this SEO club are going to be willing to have major economic relationships with Iran while it still continues to be sanctioned by the United States, and secondary sanctions have. Uh, really impeded even China which has taken bold um decisions to continue importing Iranian oil from taking it much much beyond that so there's still a big question mark what Iran is going to gain from this club economically which is the biggest uh, I would say domestic security issue facing the country and secondly in terms of being able to provide Iran a a protective shield a security shield against Potential skirmishes or escalation with its major foes, which is the United States, Israel, uh, and some of the Arab Gulf countries. You know, we know that this club of SEO members very rarely gets involved with you know major conflicts around the world. They have to act by consensus, which really holds back their ability to move forward. We've even seen the the you know the major players in this club, like Russia and China. Being very hesitant to engage to protect Iran against strikes from Israel in places like Syria, um, in places like you know Iraq and Yemen recently, so you know it's 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 a big question mark how much it's going to advance Iran's security, uh, but for sure the optics are a win for for the Raisi presidency and and you know being. Seen in that photo um, with all these heavyweight players in the in the Eastern Powers and and in Eurasia and, and with uh, President Erdogan, um, is going to embolden him af- ahead of going to New York for the General Assembly.
0: So optics are nice, but it's not exactly NATO. The the question I think that maybe uh, still begs answering though from what you said is why now? Why is China? Um, has why has China changed its tune apparently on Iran? Yeah, could you have any insight into that? Why is why is after all of these years China more interested in having uh, Iran in the club?
1: I think what we're seeing on a broader scale is that China is changing its kind of its more kind of assertive or aggressive posture to building a real counter alliance, a real bloc. Um, that includes Russia, that includes Iran. Um, you see that over the course of uh, uh, of the war in Ukraine, there was also intensified contact with Iran. Um, this was... Is all a question of how can we, in the kind of inner reality that is determined by system competition, that is determined by system rivalry with the United States, how can we um, improve our position? How can we increase our leverage? And how can we do things that actually you know, make it harder um, for the West, um, for the US um, to bring. Its allies together so it all has to be seen in this kind of broader strategic context where the the biggest reference point is always the united states for china um, and in that context it makes sense to enhance your um, your options that are on the table but you can also see at that meeting that um, everyone has self-interests there this is in a <laughs> it's a gathering of the self-interested and they're all hedging and they're all playing and they all have their cards kind of relatively close to their chest
0: Um, And I think that
1: is what's interesting to see. And that's why I also wouldn't overestimate all of those kind of the readouts that we get from the different meetings and the interpretations of the specific words that were used by China and specific words that were used by Russia. This is a moment of insecurity as well, because um, one doesn't know how the outcome of the Ukraine war is going to be in the end and what the effect of that will be. So um, also for the Chinese government, it is important to kind of keep all as many options as possible open at this point in time. But the fact that this was a reassurance to all of these different states that you know this organization that is headquartered in Beijing, there's, there's a lot of ownership here by China. Um, and I think this was something that they wanted to demonstrate as well.
0: From a Western perspective, probably the most interesting thing at this summit is the question of how uh, Vladimir Putin and in, in Russia are getting on with China and whether China is still supportive of Russia in, in the Ukraine war, given that it seems to be going quite badly for Russia. In that sense, uh, most of the Western press has picked up on the body language and the fact that Putin seemed to be very much the junior partner uh, and that he, in, in essence, uh, said, that, acknowledged that China and the others at the meeting would have concerns and that he intended to address them, which in the context of um, Putin watching is quite an acknowledgement. W- what is your assessment of that? Is, how is the China-Russia relationship going as Russia seems to be losing a war? And is Putin uh, becoming ever more desperate for Chinese support?
4: Well, I would probably not put it that way. uh, But it's true that it was uh, the first in person meeting of Putin and Xi, um, since the beginning of the war last time they met uh, early February, when they signed this famous document on everlasting partnership. And this time, In the introduction to the meeting, there was a sentence by Putin saying uh, that he understood China had questions and concerns regarding the special military operation um, in Ukraine and that he was willing to use the meeting to explain what was going on. Um, The interesting thing for me is that the readouts from the meeting seem to imply that she didn't mention this issue at all. So probably it was at the core of their meeting, but uh, but none of them will give more details about what they have been discussing. Most probably, Putin has been asking for support, including economically and in terms of deliveries, where China has been very cautious. I mean, the the, the economic relationship has been developing in a very dynamic way since the beginning of the war, with China absorbing some of Russian exports that cannot go to to the EU anymore, but it's still short of uh, Russian expectations. And particularly, China has been very cautious not to fall under US sanctions in its economic relationship with Russia. So, Putin probably has a feeling that China could do more, but he probably is not either in a position to ask for more. What seems to me interesting, though, in in the setting of this particular summit um, is also what the other participants were expecting um, and how they view China and Russia. And I I have the feeling that for Central Asians, at least, um, China is clearly um, the important participant here. Um, And Russia is sort of, um, yeah, losing its its dominance in the regional equation.
0: So, I mean, there were quite a lot of predictions at the beginning of this war that it would mean that Russia was essentially forced into a sort of subservient, subservient or subordinate relationship with China. And that meant that in some ways, even if Russia lost the war, or particularly if Russia lost the war, uh, China would be the winner. Um, is that is is that how you it seems to be playing out? Uh, maybe you can you can start with that, Marie. But i I'd like to also hear Yanka on that. I,
4: I mean, China is will be the winner in the end, whether Russia loses or whether Russia wins. The decoupling of Russia from the West uh, clearly plays um, into China's hand probably china would be more comfortable with a winning russia because if you have allies um then you prefer them to be a bit strong um and not losers but if russia loses um china doesn't lose anything i mean as long as china doesn't follow the way of russia in the decoupling uh, and and doesn't fall under uh, western sanctions china doesn't lose anything and Ch- china can get more leverage on Russia. So, um, I mean, all sides are winning for for China in this.
0: So if Russia wins the war, China wins. If Russia loses the war, China wins. Yeah. Would you see it that way?
1: I think it's not that easy. I think that is a bit more nuanced. I think the Chinese leadership has been really capable in always um, maintaining a situation where they can get a good outcome, whatever the circumstances, and kind of flexibly react to how a situation develops and then reap the most benefits out of it. For example, now, you know, I think the SEO meeting was a really good, as as Maria said, really good way of reassuring its own role in Central Asia um, and exerting power there and making a powerful appearance there and that is certainly a positive outcome that would have been harder probably if Russia had already won the war and was going to be like was would be full of the the power of a just you know freshly won war and major territorial gains etc. What I think the only scenario that is really terrible from a Chinese perspective and one that would mean trouble is not russia losing the war but putin losing power that is a scenario that creates instability um, and it makes it more difficult to deal with russia that doesn't mean that that is something that the chinese government cannot also find arrangements with i think central asia is also a really good region as an example for showing that china is, is able to you know deal with different leaders and find arrangements with the new leadership then and just deals with that but instability at the Russian border, at the Chinese-Russian border, instability in that relationship with a major energy partner—that um, would not be something that the Chinese government would be would like to see. So, keeping Putin stable enough is, I think, at the moment the the um, the, the, the motto under which the operation of the Chinese is going. So, this meeting was a really good. Uh, yeah um display of that um, kind of giving them some um diplomatic support but not going as far as to um jeopardize the own eco- your own economy from the chinese side
0: look i'm with them on the the idea that chaos in a country with several thousand nuclear weapons is not a good thing but the question really is what are they doing about it i mean it's uh they they're taking some pictures with putin and making him look a little bit small which is not that hard to do because he is small but um but what are they, uh, what what levers do they have? Well, how can they actually uh, support Putin in domestically? And are they doing anything for that?
1: Mostly that the support is uh, is economic, obviously. And yes, there is a lot of things that I guess Marie has, has pointed out. I mean, trade has been ticking up. Um, this is stabilizing the Russian economy. There are um, limitations to what they are willing to go and how far they are willing to go. Um, this is one of the big questions that I've been kind of asking myself from the beginning of the war, how far would Beijing be willing to go if putin were really kind of tumbling and falling um this is something that is is a really difficult question to answer um i think ahead of the party congress which will take place on the 16th of october um we will not see any major moves um it it will be more interesting to watch what is happening between then and the end of the end of the year and how the military situation is developing which is obviously closely monitored from beijing as well
0: ellie The thing that I don't understand about the attitude that you described for Russia and China in the SCO where they're trying to give Iran an outlet is that they, that they're also powers in the Iran nuclear deal and they seem to be holding the line against Iran within the context of the Iran nuclear deal. So how do we explain that apparent, at least, contradiction?
3: Well, actually in, uh, um, you know, over the past year uh, and even under the Trump administration, China and Russia were giving shield and cover to Iran uh, at the u n Security Council, for example, when the u s tried to snap back sanctions using um, this uh, mechanism under the nuclear deal and even you know over the past year uh, there have been times when um you know, the Russians have put spanners in the work uh, when we thought we were close to getting the deal done uh, just when the Ukraine uh, conflict broke out. Um, China, I mean, it, it's it's actually just generally I'm diverting from your question a bit. But from what, what we've been talking about, it's bizarre that these guys, these strong men are all together pretending everything is hunky dory. When, for example, Iran's uh, oil sales to China, which was one of the things that has been keeping Iran you know, at least on paper, party to this nuclear deal that's like uh, being hollowed out completely, their oil sales to Iran have now reduced because Russia has taken over and Russia is is selling more oil to China now. And so there's a big question mark of, actually, does that dynamic make Iran want the deal more because they can actually have a new outlet for their oil sales to not necessarily the European market at large, but other Asian economies and elsewhere. You know, when you compare the Chinese and Russian position on the nuclear deal, they have really taken their foot off the gas pedal and they are really taking a backseat and at times really spoiling the possibility of getting a deal done with Iran uh, for, for the West. In the recent weeks, when we thought we were very close again to getting a deal done, the, the way it was described to me is that the Russians and the Chinese have Played a helpful role by not playing a role in terms of not obstructing uh, things moving forward. So we'll have to see. I mean, I think there there will be some interesting meetings that will be had at the General Assembly on on the nuclear front. But I think the key players uh, have been for the past two years and will continue to be the the U.S. and Iran.
0: I guess it's key to set low expectations, and it does seem as if. Um... It is a little bit hard to count on this rogues gallery of, of dictators. Uh, it's they, they are not uh, they, are, they are friends that can be perhaps rented but not bought. Asa, does, is that something that worries um, President Erdogan? Does he does he believe he can count on these people?
2: Well, Erdogan certainly believes he can count on Putin at this point because it's a symbiotic relationship. Turkey is providing an economic lifeline and in turn, Russians are putting some money into the Turkish system, money that he badly needs. Um, I wouldn't call it a friendship. I would not call it a relationship of, of trust because there are other... Elements in the story that are not at the forefront at this point, but they are there, such as differences on Syria, differences on other issues, black competition for control of the Black Sea, etc. But for now, Putin is an indispensable economic partner for Erdogan. He has not built a strong relationship with China, not economic nor political. And um, that's not going to happen. And Turkey, too, is, you know, while it's doing this strange tango with Russia, has to be somewhat um, cognizant of um, you know, sanctions and secondary sanctions. Uh, Erdogan has inoculated himself to a certain amount to criticism from the West by selling drones to Ukraine uh, and holding this very important card, which is uh, green lighting uh, Sweden and uh, Finland's entry into NATO. But, the, the, you know, obviously this, this is not a carte blanche and it's not going to be effective forever. So he's going to be careful, but push ahead. I think that one of the things about this photo op from last night is that You know, we're focused on what it means in terms of great power politics and in terms of how these countries position themselves vis-a-vis the West or other actors. But this meeting is also intended for domestic audiences, for Iran, for Turkey, I'm sure for Putin. I don't know about China, but he's heading to a party congress. So I think that element is also important. And uh, it's a photo they will want to use in domestic politics. They
0: so overall, it. it's a uh, it's a group of men who uh, need each other, but don't necessarily trust each other and probably don't really like each other, which is right. all interesting because um, ECFR has an all staff meeting next week. So we'll have to we'll have to compare the dynamic and see how see how we we really we rate. I think that we've come to the end of our time, but the one thing that we have left to do on this podcast is the bookshelf section. So what's on your bookshelf? And why don't we start with Marie? What's on your bookshelf, Marie?
4: Um, On my bookshelf is a French book, uh, and I'm sorry for this. Don't apologize for France. (laughs) It's called Jamais Frères, and it's... It was just published by one of the best, if not the best, uh French specialist on Ukraine and Russia. She's been uh, so her name is Anna Colin Lebedev, and she's been working on um war and societies both in Russia and Ukraine for the last 20 years. Um and she published this book uh which is at the same time very personal and um, very um, insightful and um, meant for a broader audience to explain the nature of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia and how both societies share some similarities but are in their core different and have experienced divergent trajectories of a The last 30 years. Yeah, it's a fascinating book. And as I said, it's meant for a broader audience. So it's
3: really easy to read.
0: If you you speak French.
3: Uh, If you speak French, that's the condition.
0: Ellie, what's on your bookshelf?
3: So I sadly haven't read a book for a few weeks. Or months. <laughs> <As a young laughs> but I listen to copious amounts of podcasts, probably too much. So I'm going to recommend a podcast, a rival podcast called The Rest is Politics, which has provided me lots of humor over the summer. It's uh, by Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell, and it takes a kind of global take on, on lots of different things happening, um, particularly I would say in, in the UK and Europe, but also in the Middle East and, and, and the US. Uh, it's, it's very fun, uh, but also for kind of politics nerds like me, it's, it's, it's a very informative listen.
0: Okay. It's hard to be a new mother, I guess, so you're excused. Janka, uh, have your children prevented you from reading?
1: No, actually, mine are grown up enough so that uh, I can actually read books again. I I wanted to recommend a German book, so this fits nicely with uh, Marie's uh, suggestion that we should be more European here in our ECFR podcast. Um, It is called Die beste aller möglichen Welten, The Best of All Possible Worlds by Michael Kemper, and it's a book about Leibniz as a scholar and about the way he was thinking um, and about the way he was kind of trying to discover all of the things that are difficult about the world and uncover all the problems from mathematics and natural sciences to. Um, all of the questions around theology, and it is has actually helped me over the last two to three weeks just think through and appreciate complexities a bit more because of the way things are at the moment in geopolitics. I think we need a new kind of thinking, um, and so I'm trying to draw some inspiration from the way Leibniz has approached problems.
0: Okay, well, I'm still angry at him for inventing calculus, so um, don't uh, don't follow in that tradition. Oslo, what's on your bookshelf?
2: Well, I just started a science fiction book. Uh, it's the first science fiction novel that I'm reading, but it's the first science quite- fiction
0: novel in your life.
2: In my life, yes, quite a page turner. The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. It takes place in a future, but not too distant a future. You know, after various environmental catastrophes, and there is a ministry, a UN body called the Ministry for the Future that coordinates climate action. Quite a masterful post-apocalyptic description of this post-apocalyptic world. And um, I do recommend it, even though I'm only halfway through.
0: But with that, from Asla Ayantashbash, Ellie Garanmaya, Marie Dumoulin, Yanka Ortel, and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it is goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Luthi Hoppenthal, and the editor of this week's episode is Marlena Riedel.